my third week in Vietnam, we were overrun at a place called Alpha North. The first thing I thought was, I'm in a place where it's people's job to kill me, and they're allowed to do that. And I can't say, time out, King's X, give me a second chance. I, along with the American public, had been misled, and this war was wrong. They gave me a medal for serving over there, and I said, here, take a decision back. was made that last day, we're going to form a national organization, Vietnam Veterans Against the War. guys really didn't do anything. They just wanted to demonstrate against the war. They didn't want to shoot anybody or blow up anything. Well, I think there was a mood at the time that some of the people that opposed the war were going to Canada, or they were hippies that, you know, they were cowards or whatever. And the VBAW, these guys were over there and they got shot at and they, they shot back and they were combat veterans and they were gaining a lot of credibility. Hello, my name is John Paul Laurier and welcome to part two of this three-part podcast series on the Gainesville 8 brought to you by the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program. Founded in 1967, the program has developed into one of the largest oral history archives in the nation with more than 6,000 interviews. We are dedicated to gathering, preserving, and promoting histories from all walks of life. One community, many voices. Last week focused on what the Vietnam War itself was like, the story people were told going into this war, and the depravity soldiers faced within it. Scott himself became hardened, thinking only of victory, destruction, and death for the purpose of protecting his men and winning a war he didn't know the true cause of. However, with his return to the United States and enrollment at the University of Florida, little by little Scott began to see disparities between what the media said was happening in Vietnam and what he had seen firsthand. And with the encouragement from Jane Fonda's visit to UF, Scott agreed to speak out about his time as a Marine at an event called the Winter Soldier Investigations. In this next portion, Scott references a film when talking about the Winter Soldier investigations. This is a film that you can still find today, and it shows the recorded testimonies of the veterans, including Scott himself. I'd also like to remind listeners at this time that these excerpts from Scott come from several different interviews he has given over the years, thus some of the differences in his voice or tone. At the Winter Soldier investigation, if you watch the film, um, you can see my change happened on film uh, and, and the, the real credit to that were the journalists, people like you. Um, and, um, they were able to ask me questions in a non-threatening way that allowed me to be open and honest. And, um, if they would have been judgmental, I would have been, I would have made rationalizations and I wouldn't have been as honest as I was. Um, um, so they would say things like, what were you thinking when that happened? You know, and I, and I would say, I never thought about that before. And then I would start thinking about it and then I would give an answer, but it was them prodding me with these questions that were important questions about things that I'd never concerned myself with or thought about. You know, I was just a Marine, I did what I was told, and um, um, I didn't really think about why we were really there or uh, any of that stuff. And um, so the last day, the, the organizers of the Winter Soldier investigation, who were Vietnam veterans, and they were with Vietnam veterans against the war, they said, well, what do you think? And, and before the Winter Soldier investigation, I just knew about what I did in Vietnam. I didn't really know what the army was doing or the Navy or the Air Force or what people did before I got there or after I left. 
but for these three days of hearings, I was able to get a bigger picture uh, uh, and, and also a, a better understanding of the policy. I was passionately moved by what happened at Winter Soldier. Like I had known what I did in Vietnam, and I had known what I had seen in Vietnam, um, um, but I had no compassion or empathy for the Vietnamese people. I just hated them all. Um, and I actually didn't even consider them human. Uh, and so um, at Winter Soldier, I got to hear veterans, and I got to learn about a lot of stuff that I didn't know. And I got to see what a huge crime was being committed on Vietnam and the people of Vietnam. So um, I thought that the Winter Soldier investigation was a great educational tool. So a decision was made that last day, we're going to form a national organization, Vietnam Veterans Against the War. We're going to turn that into a national organization. So later that month, we met in New York, and we wrote out the bylaws, the Constitution, and all of that, and we formed a national organization. And, and that's how that came about, and, and I was now against the war. After the VVAW was formed, they began to recruit like-minded veterans. And what made it um, able to happen was um, Playboy magazine gave us a free full-page ad. And um, there were 20,000 responses to that ad. So all of a sudden, um, I got a um, letter. Everything was snail mail back then um, with, with the names of all of these people in Florida, Alabama, and Georgia who wanted to join Vietnam Veterans Against the War. And it was my job to organize them. Yeah, I believe it was October of 1969. In Playboy magazine, they had a full-page picture of a Purple Heart. Of course, it caught my attention. And then it went on to say that it was about Vietnam veterans against the war, and they were nationalization or like that. Well, heck, I thought this is exactly what I'm the way I feel. And so I sent them, a, you know, even though I was a student, I sent them some money just to contribute. And then they sent me a thing back, and by then I was at the University of Florida that was just Richard Hudgens, who was one of the veterans recruited through the Playboy article. I wrote a letter to each of those people. And in the letter, I included a copy of the names and addresses of all of the people in their city. And I said, look, these are the people in your city that feel the same way. You guys should get together, um, set up a meeting, and I'll come and help organize you into a chapter. So that started happening in Florida, Alabama, and Georgia, all over the place. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to have winter soldier investigations in all of those cities. So we had one here in Gainesville. And the one here in Gainesville, all the people that testified were veterans from Gainesville. And that way, the people who came to hear us were people who knew us. And I thought that the best way to educate people was letting them hear the information from people who they knew. The VVAW quickly grew, and soon they held their first national demonstration against the war in April 1971. This was Operation Dewey Canyon 3. Most of the information used to describe this protest comes directly from the Vietnam Veterans Against Wars website, www.org. On April 19th, about 900 vets and several parents of soldiers who had fallen attempted to march to Arlington Square Cemetery to honor the lives of those who had not made it home. This is where the first confrontation began as authorities denied entrance to the vets, forcing them to hold their ceremony outside the locked front gate. You can imagine how emotional that was for, for guys 
to not be able to go to the grave sites of their friends or family members. And so we almost had a riot there um, at the gates of Arlington. Um, and I was one of the people who worked really hard to control that so things didn't get out of hand, because how would it look a bunch of veterans um, um, knocking down the gates in Arlington and, and, and uh, attacking federal agents in Arlington who were trying to keep us from going in? They eventually left, vowing to return at another date to properly honor their fallen comrades. They then marched to the Capitol steps where they were met with a few congressmen who spoke at length trying to appease the crowd. But soon the veterans decided that it was time for them to speak and for Congress to listen. They marched up to the mall where they had set up a camp. The district court tried to break up the protest, ordering the encampment illegal. This was then appealed and brought up to the Supreme Court. President Nixon was receiving hourly reports and tried to discredit the protesters with even one of his spokesmen saying that they weren't vets at all, to which the veterans produced over 900 papers proving their service. This went on as the Supreme Court ordered the vets vacate by 4.30. They refused. Deals on how to proceed with the protests were offered and rejected. Over 100 vets were arrested as they began protesting the Supreme Court as well. Finally, on the last day, the veterans made plans for one final demonstration. It was decided that they would throw their medals back to the Capitol. They marched back down to where a fence had recently been built by the building. One by one, they said their name, unit, and a statement and hurled their medals back towards the Capitol. This was immensely difficult for many of the veterans. In doing this act, they were giving up something that represented their valor in the face of the worst times of their lives. They said the war was a lie, and in doing so, they said that all the sacrifices they and their friends had made were for nothing. The medals used to sit in a box uh, with a velvet background on the fireplace in my place here in Gainesville. Um, and um, for, for all of my sacrifices in Vietnam, that's all I had to show for them besides my scars, my mental scars, my physical scars. So um, they were really important to me. And I took them with me to Washington. I wasn't sure that I was going to throw them away because they were really important to me. And I actually didn't decide to actually do it until I got to the front of the line. Um, I, um, it was a really hard thing for me to do. Uh, and um, it ended up being like... Um, the cutting of the umbilical cord between me and the government. Once I threw those medals away, um, there was no ties between me and the government anymore. This next portion comes directly from the VVAW's website. One veteran threw away his nine Purple Hearts. Another threw over the fence a cane he had used as a result of a war injury. And on and on it went. Discharge papers, silver stars, bronze stars, Purple Hearts. In all, literally thousands of medals were thrown back at the government that had sent each of the veterans to fight for the U.S. ruling class. Never before had such a demonstration occurred by war veterans. It was unprecedented in the history of the country that veterans protested in such a unified and dramatic way their opposition to a war that was still raging on the other side of the world. The sentiments of the vets was expressed best by one veteran who tossed his medals away and stated, If we have to fight again, it will be to take these steps. And so the protest ended. But it had definitely gotten the attention of the government and the American people. This was a problem for the government. Public opinion was beginning to turn against the war, and until this point, the government had an easy time discrediting most anti-war groups. However, the Vietnam veterans were unique. Brady Coleman, the lawyer who would later represent the Gainesville 8, shared his thoughts on the issue. Well, I think there was a mood at the time that some of the people that opposed the war 
were going to Canada or they were hippies that, you know, they were cowards or whatever. And the VBAW, these guys were over there and they got shot at and they, they shot back and they were combat veterans and they were gaining a lot of credibility with middle America and certainly with me and everybody else. And I, I thought, you know, right on. And I think the Nixon administration was getting freaked out too. They were gaining credibility. And so the government had to react. We were highly infiltrated. And so we started getting um, intelligence from members. And those members turned out to be undercover agents whose job it was to get us to do something illegal so we could be busted and our credibility could be hurt. It was really all about our credibility. Until there was Vietnam veterans against the war, there'd be demonstrators. And the government would say, they're just draft dodgers. They're commie sympathizers. They're cowards not willing to serve their country. They don't know what they're talking about. But they couldn't say that about us, so they had to discredit us a different way. This is Scott Camille again as he explains how the government began to retaliate against the VVAW. And then I started getting arrested. I was surprised at first. Um, um, I was actually really stunned at first because the first arrest was kidnapping for ransom and I was facing the death penalty. Um, And the night that I was accused of kidnapping someone, I was actually in St. Petersburg having dinner with a U.S. senator, Senator Gurney, from Alaska. Uh, And um, it was the Concerned Democrat Convention, and I was one of the speakers. So I had a great alibi. (laughs) Um, So those charges were dropped, but I spent 10 days in jail um, before any of that information came out. And every hour on the radio, you could hear, and, and Camille could get the death penalty. That's a lot of fucking pressure. And so the, my mother's judge friend called Selig up, and Selig sent his junior guy, Larry Turner, to the jail to see me. So, so Larry came in to see me, and he um, um, said that he's interested in representing me because my mother called. And I said, well, I had already talked to Carol Scott. And he said, well, I can do a better job. Uh, and, and I didn't know shit. I didn't know anything um, about how stuff worked in court. And um, I said, well, how could you do a better job? And he said, well, I used to be a prosecutor. I spent a lot of time putting cases together, and I know how to take them apart. And I said, how much would it cost? And he said, $10,000. And this was 1972, 1973. Oh, so this was 72. Um, um, and I said, um, $10,000, I'll probably never see that amount of money in my whole life. Um, and he said, do you give me your word that if you um, get money, that you'll try to pay us off? And I said, I give you my word. So Larry Turner became our lawyer, um, and um, um, he got me out of jail on the kidnapping charges. And then a couple of weeks later, they kicked in my door and arrested me on drug charges. Um, And then um, um, I got bailed out of jail for that. And then the kidnapping charges were dropped. Um, the first drug trial, I was found not guilty. And then um, um, a taxi cab driver went to see Larry Turner, and he said that he had taken an FBI agent um, and the prosecutor um, to the airport after the trial, and that he heard them talking about 
they weren't done with me and that they were going to they were going to get get me um and um that my safety was going to be involved uh, so um Larry told me, you know, they're not done with you. You need to be careful. Um, and then they ended up coming back to Gainesville. One of the a federal agent held my arms above my head. The other one put a gun to my back. The bullet went in behind my heart and came out my stomach. And then I was charged again with um, um, drug charges, um, assaulting federal agents, resisting arrest with violence. Not only did the jury come back and found me not guilty, but the jury recommended that the agents be indicted for attempted murder, and nothing happened to them. For me, I was working against the war in Vietnam. Uh, if I go out and I mow my yard, I spend a couple of hours, I'm done, I'm all wet and sweaty, I look at the yard, and the yard looks really good, and it makes me feel good inside for the work that I've done because I see the results of that work, and that's called positive reinforcement. When you're working for peace and justice and the war keeps going on and keeps going on and the government keeps doing dirty stuff, um, there's not a lot of positive reinforcement. And, and the government was trying to intimidate me. They were trying to stop me from my activity. So a person who would volunteer to go to Vietnam, volunteer for the Marine Corps, and get wounded in, in Vietnam and volunteer to stay uh, um, and get wounded again isn't the kind of person that's going to be worried about getting arrested. The goal of their intimidation was to stop me, but I recognized that that's what they were trying to do, and I decided for myself that I would um, change that intimidation into positive reinforcement, and that the idea in my mind was that if I wasn't being effective, they wouldn't be coming after me. So each time they arrest me, that's like saying, Scott, you're doing a really good job. So while they thought that stuff would slow me down, every time they arrested me, it gave me more energy because I considered that to be my positive reinforcement. The Vietnam veterans against war had quickly become the target of the federal government. As their credibility grew, so did the danger they faced, and as Scott said, they were quickly infiltrated. Come back for our finale where we'll discuss the government's infiltration of the VVAW, how and why they were charged with intended violence at the Republican National Convention, and the court case that followed. You're listening to the Samuel Proctor Oral History Programs podcast. I'm John Paul Laurier, and thank you for joining us.